0: Welcome to episode 71 of the 1099 for the week of December 19th, 2016. I am your host, as always, Josiah Renaud. And with me today is the Fail Better Games founder and a writer and game designer for games like Dragon Age The Last Court and Sunless Sea, Alexis Kennedy. Alexis, how are you doing today?
1: I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. Uh, I put out a call not too long ago for, hey, like who do you want me to talk to on the show? And like five or six people immediately said you. Uh, and normally if I'm going to like do research on someone to figure out like, all right, what exactly have they done? I'm going to like articles on like, I don't know, gamesindustry.biz or LinkedIn pages. And you were one of those cool people who's done enough to have a Wikipedia page. So that made my life much easier. But instead of me reading from that, uh, just to kind of get things going, what got you into game design? What got you to found Fail Better Games? Like instead of me describing your career up to this point, or at least how you got into this, in your mind, what brought you to games writing and game design?
1: So I, I, I wanted to be a writer, like a lot of people who, um, who end up in writing, uh, for as long as I could remember wanting to be anything. And it always seemed a preposterously unrealistic ambition because most people who want to be writers never make it. And I wanted to be a game designer, I guess, since I was eight years old, uh, when I was sitting um, in the viewing gallery of a swimming pool behind two kids who uh, had a rule book with a blue dragon on the cover, and they were talking about hit points. And I was entranced and um, uh, got the bug there and then. So uh I, I loved the idea of writing. I loved the idea of making games. Um, I was into tabletop role playing very early on, and it, it just never seemed realistic because it was so competitive and because I'm a, a, an easily distracted sort of person. So I went off and became a teacher, and that was no fun. So I became a software developer, which was much more fun um, and better paid, but still not very creatively satisfying. And in the end. Um, I was developing financial software during the financial crash of 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. and uh, I was having my first child around that same time, and I inherited a little bit of money, just enough to live on for a few months, and I thought, what the hell, if I'm ever going to have a chance to do anything uh, creative, gamey, technically, uh, now is the time, and Every time I wanted to do something writer i I'd start writing, and I'd get the itch to design something more like a game-like experience. And the reverse, whenever I down to write a game, I missed the flexibility of writing. So I chose to do a, a text-based game. And this was before um, the great revolution in text-based games. It was before Twine. It was before 80 Days. It was before Her Story. Uh, it was... Um, uh, at that point, it, it looked like quite a sort of audacious thing to do, and in fact, what we did for in London um, has only ever been moderately commercially successful, but it has been moderately commercially successful, which is a big ask and um, it It has been more influential than I ever expected
0: when you you mentioned that you had a kid, so you had a family at the, at the time that you started to get into games, was there Is there a weird thing that once you have a kid, once you have a family, to talk to your family and say, like, hey, instead of doing software development on regular software, I'm going to go try my hand at making video games? Was there any sort of reaction like, is this financially stable? Are you sure this is a good idea?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So um, it was... This 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 horrible quote: um, "The the enemy of, cre- of creativity is the pram in the hallway." I don't think that's that's fair or true, but I see what the guy was getting at. Once you have a kid, especially a young kid, it's you know eight times as hard to do anything else, let alone a new business venture. Yeah. So it really was a dead then or never thing. And my my then wife, but um, well, we're separated now, although on good terms, um, was uh, quite sceptical about my um, intentions but given that i was working at the time for an organization that subsequently went through five rounds of redundancy uh, it wasn't as insane as a decision as it um, uh, as it might have seemed otherwise and subsequently i ended up in, in paid work at Better for uh, seven years uh, which was longer than i'd ever spent in any single job before then
0: Mentioned earlier that you founded Fail Better Games, and earlier this year, actually in May, you left this company that you co-founded. And I was reading an article, and I think it was on GamesIndustry.biz, that referenced how you were more managing than actually writing and doing creative things at that time. And you mentioned earlier every time you're writing, you want to do something with design; every time you're designing, you want to do something with writing. But as someone who did find financial stability at Fail Better in an industry where you know I've been doing this for seven years, it's hard to find. A full time job that you like and that you you know can actually be financially comfortable. Was it difficult to make that decision to finally leave that company you started to go out and do a lot more freelance work without really knowing how it was going to pan out?
1: It, it, enormously, um, it, it was one of the hardest decisions I've ever made. Uh, there were some mitigating factors. Um, one was that I did, um, sell my stake back to fail better. So, you know, I, I wasn't left by any means destitute. Um, another was that I felt if I'd managed to found fail, fail better, um, and build it into a, you know, a studio of 16 people, um, is, is, is a good size really, especially with one as, as unusual to focus as us. If I could do that once, um, with my experience and my reputation now, it's going to be, you know, that much easier if I want to go back to it. And I've, said several times i expect i will found another studio a year or two down the line but the biggest thing is the the whole reason i got into the biz was to write and design and um to learn new ways of approaching interactive narrative and i was spending less and less of my time writing and designing although i still doing some and in fail better i built a company that was very good at one had a couple of particular kinds of games and a couple of approaches. And those are the things we were known for, the things we had tech spun up for internally and the kind of things that the people had been trained to do there. And I'm not doing anything radically different. I'm not doing um, telepathically controlled <laughs> VR uh, sports games, uh, but I'm interested in, in other approaches. And there was just no way I was ever really going to be able to uh to do that if I stayed it felt better unless I fired everyone um, and rebuilt the company to pursue my tech, my personal projects, which, which wasn't feasible. So I I spent, I I actually took a a week off work just to agonize about it and talk to people. Got some very good advice. And at the end of it, I just thought there's a reason I'm in this business and I've only got so many hours of daylight left. Uh, You know, quite a lot of of hours of daylight left. (laughs) You have to decide. How are you going to spend the years of your life? And I didn't want to spend the years of my life managing people who are managing people.
0: Did you already have kind of a game plan for as soon as you left? You mentioned you were agonizing over it, so I'm guessing you thought this through. But was there like, okay, I want to work for this studio or I want to make this style of game or anything like that? Did you kind of lay out, here's my freelancer contractor game plan moving forward?
1: uh freelancer no um uh personal projects yes uh i just hoped i'd be able to pick up some stuff when i started talking about um uh leaving i got a couple of of, of early bites very quickly to my my delight uh, um an ex-intern of ours put a, put me in touch with paradox and um a uh, and mike gladel from bioware to my extreme delight DM'd me literally on the day he heard I was leaving and said, do you want to do some burgers? But um, at the moment that I made that decision, I didn't have anything secure in the pipeline. I did have three or four ideas, as every game designer on the planet always does, mm. for things I wanted to do uh, and things I thought I could do as a sort of a, a, a one and a half, um, maybe two person team. Uh, but it was, it was, um, it, it was, you know, throwing myself off a, off a cliff into the sea. Uh, not onto like a, a rocky wasteland full of spikes, but it, it was a bit um, uncertain. But as I say, I, I, I dealt with that uncertainty once before, so it was much less frightening the second time round. Still a bit alarming,
0: <laughs> just a little bit. But I mean, it, it, as you mentioned, it sounds like you're doing well for yourself right now. And, and we, you just mentioned Bioware, and you did uh, Dragon Age: of Last Court. You had a big part in that. What? How did that relationship come about? Because for me this is uh I've recently moved from writing about games to more writing for games with uh Ten Gentlemen and Sony Santa Monica. But I guess maybe I don't understand all the machinations of it. What is it is it common for someone the size of Bioware to reach out to someone like you to help write and design certain things, whether it be DLC or just certain sections of massive, massive games like Dragon Age?
1: Really not. No. Um, uh, and it was uh, and congratulations, by the way. I, I see a lot of journalists jumping the fence in the other direction, and I, Thank I, you. It's, I sympathize. You know, it's you, fun. you got, yeah, and and games journalists you work. You work so hard and so badly fucking paid. So uh, you know, gauge writing is, is is not the the most secure career in the universe. But but uh, welcome on to the slightly <laughs> greener grass.
0: It's great. It's it's yeah. It's it's entirely different. It's been a uh, weird transition to go from like a critic's point you know, like perspective and uh, understanding to. Having something you've worked on closely get critiqued, but it's been, yeah, it's been fascinating to make that transition.
1: I was reading an article, um, which Tom Bissell, who, who used to be a games critic and, and is now, um, largely a games writer, was quoted the other day as saying that he'd spent years, um, uh, thinking, Jesus Christ, you know, the quality of the writing in these games is so bad. I could do better. And then as soon as he got inside a team, he realized the other constraints. And that's very <laughs> much how. How I felt uh when I finally got inside is is that there's there's always always more drug going on as a apparent so uh, if, else-
0: if if you don't mind me asking like it, what what did you learn when you made that transition? Sorry, we're now like a question within a question right now, but what did you learn that did change your mind because you you mentioned like oh i I could do better writing than that so Why i I love the case.
1: Yeah, I'll answer that uh, by answering the first um, uh, uh, question, in fact, or, or, or I'll segue. So the, the answer to the first one, I think it was, it, it is very unusual. Uh, it's not unheard of. I mean, you do get um, uh, everything from um, interesting partnerships to um, talent-based acquisitions. And um, it, in Bioware's case, um, a bunch of the guys over there had been playing for London. They liked it. And back in 2010, when we had no money, no money at all, I was, you know, as it was through, through half of Fairbanks' existence until Sun really, just um, constantly calculating payroll in my head every day uh, to see if we could, could you know, make three months. Uh, so this tiny little like, indie, indie shop of, like, four people around the table in an incubation space, and I suddenly get an email from the creative director of Dragon Age who says, hey, we really like your work. How do you feel about coming over here and doing a, a, a workshop on interactive um narrative design uh, at Bioware? And obviously I went, <laughs> and and when I regained the power of speech, I, I um I contacted Mike and said, Obviously, yes, that'd be wonderful. And while I was over there, they said, We have an ulterior motive. We're interested in possibly working with you on a Dragon Age prequel. Uh, which then took um, some years to come to fruition because uh, large companies move slowly. But Mike's specific rationale uh, was that um, Bioware has had to become many things to many people since the Belder's Gate days. It has to appeal to a much wider audience. And trying to serve those different kind of audiences is a challenge. And what he wanted specifically with Dragon Age Last Court was something that, that really fed on people's desire for large quantities of text and for complex law that is is harder to get into a you know a, a ten pole uh, console release. <clears throat> so we are at that end of the continuum of all the things they're trying to do. So that's that's uh, you, you asked earlier um, what kind of compromises are involved, and I think that that's one of the things. If you're the bigger the game you make, the harder it is to focus on a niche. So the more people uh, have a legitimate claim uh to being served by your game so that means it, it, you know in necessary I'm, I'm i'm not i'm not going to badmouth any of the AAA guys here right you know obsidian bioware bethesda um, cd project red familiar that you know for really shining lights in um uh traditional CRPG design. But none of them are making games as complicated or as, no, not, they're making very complicated games. None of them are making games as obscure or specific or niche as a lot of indie releases, because they just can't. They have to be more accessible uh, to more mainstream taste. That's just the way it is. So that's the kind of big picture sort of compromise you have to make. The small picture is when I did my interactive narrative workshop, which is one of the more terrifying experiences of my life, <laughs> uh, in front of all these people whose work i had been in a barring for more than 20 years. And one of the things I said was text is awesome because text is so cheap. You can do something in a line of text that if you had to do it in 3D would take you five people, six months to put together. Uh, you can say the Leviathan rises from the sea. And there are cities caught between its teeth, uh, like fragments of food. Wow. Okay. Great image. Took me five seconds to put it together. Try doing that in, in unity. And when I was talking to one of the guys afterwards, he said, you know, the thing is for us, text isn't cheap. It's cheaper than um, 3D assets, sure. But everything we write has to be voiced. Oh yeah. And if we decide we need to change, we have to change something later on. If if there's a, a continuity error, uh, or a um, uh, an inelegancy in the phrasing, then we can't just get Jennifer Hale back in for five minutes to re-record it. So, yeah, that I guess is the micro end of the, of that thing.
0: Oh yeah, I guess because you know these intricacies of game design especially with you know, a studio the size of Bioware we talked a little bit earlier about uh, criticism of games it, do you ever read criticism maybe something someone uh, writing a review on a GameSpot at IGN that might be saying something poor about the writing of a Dragon Age or something you've worked on and get frustrated Not maybe because they don't understand the behind the scenes, what goes into it because again, I wrote uh, GameSpot reviews for three years and now being a part of a team when the reviews start coming out, there's certain things that you kind of cringe at, like, oh, if only they knew this or if only they understood how this happened or why this is this way and the limitations in that way. Do you ever feel that way when you read reviews or do you even read reviews of your games?
1: Oh, God, yeah. So, I mean, uh, <laughs> I read reviews of my games and, and every unkind thing that's been said are only five times as much. <laughs> uh, and i usually – so, I. I'm usually aware that, that most of the um, things that are said by good critics may be unsympathetic. But at the end of the day, it's what's on the screen that matters. Mm-hmm. When somebody says that they phoned this the fuck in, um, I, I'm unsympathetic to that point of view, because probably it may look from the outside like it was phoned in, but it would, people worked hard uh, for months yep. to make this thing happen. Uh, but when somebody says, this thing doesn't work on the screen, it doesn't work, and it's no use saying, but we spent three years of our lives trying to make it the best we could. If the best you could was that it didn't work, it, it, it doesn't work. So I don't, uh, as long as there's people being reasonably charitable, I don't get frustrated or, or, or angry, uh, with one exception I'll come to in a moment. Um, but I do think it's very easy to write off game designers and developers as being lazy or being foolish, when generally the people who know the thing that doesn't work in the game are the team themselves. Not necessarily everybody in the team, but you can be at the lead designer or the creative director, if there's something that really doesn't work, that they, they know it doesn't work, and they made a, a good or bad decision early on that they've had to stick to. The one thing that does piss me off is is just when you see in the comments section um, on any of you, uh an internet rando saying it's just deeply flawed design because the phrase is just deeply flawed design generally means i don't know exactly how to talk about the problems with this game yeah. so i'm going to say something that sounds kind of superior
0: yeah there's a lot of again reading a lot of reviews writing 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 a lot of reviews you do run and stuff like that where there's just these kind of bulk phrases thrown around that don't really mean anything, where it's like, oh, the gameplay is po- like, poor, it doesn't work. I'm like, okay, well, like, in- articulate that, Like, explain why, and there's a lot of that in reviews in general. It- it's like 90% of the criticism you get from reviews, stuff that you expected you would get in reviews, because more often than not, with developers I talk to, they're like, all the stuff they say doesn't work or might have not gone over well is stuff that we, of course, know Like, as we release the game because we're so close to it? Or do you often read reviews and be like, I had no idea they would have kind of knocked the game for something like this?
1: Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any of the games I've worked on, I've ever read a criticism in a review that I thought is correct and I haven't seen coming. Um, I mean, there probably has been, but I can't think of one offhand. Generally, if I read something negative, I I either think, yeah, you know, it's a fair cop. Or... Um, uh, no, you're playing it wrong. Uh, you, you didn't actually read the instructional text. In which case, it's probably our fault for putting something in instructional text rather than actually trying to make it visible in the gameplay. That's a, 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 another conversation.
0: Uh, and beyond the the other BioWare project that you're working on now that you can't talk about, uh, you recently did work with Parado- Paradoxes Stellaris and yeah. uh, doing a lot of other interesting things. If, for, for you, when you look back at your career and what got you working for really you know interesting amazing companies like Bioware like Paradox was it the tech space adventure you think that kind of unlocked everything that people took note of that and said like oh look what this guy's doing was it Sunless Sea that maybe came out and they're like man this guy really has something going for him we need to get him on these projects like what do you see as kind of your catalyst for getting into projects with Bioware and with these other companies?
1: I think, and this this may sound um, like false humility, but it it, it is actually um, by the time I get to the end, I'll be quite arrogant of them. Um, <laughs> I feel like like Fallen London was the apprenticeship, and Summer Sea was the the, the journeyman piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Fallen London, uh, we and it wasn't just me; I was the sort of founding spirit, but um, a lot of people contributed to Fallen London, and a lot of people brought very distinctive ideas to Fallen London. Chris Garden, who's still the narrative director at Fail Better now. Paul Aaron, obviously my co-founder, um, who is the artist and whose work fed back into my, um, my writing in ways that I didn't expect. And, and Liam, um, Welton, who, who was kind of like the sort of the, the fifth Beatle at Failbetter. He was just the guy who, whose work made everything hang together, um, without everybody being ever really, I think most people knew how much work he put into the games but uh london, we did a lot of things right we did a lot of things distinctively and it was the kind of game where you were doing things that you don't normally do in games things like writing poetry or electing to pursue a self-destructive quest for an ancient abomination that was going to destroy you and everything you ever loved and um there were a lot of things that were very wrong with for london as well i mean it just i i um i was really learning game design when i i got into it and we had a, a lot of bad decisions that made at the beginning uh, that people are striving heroically um, to to improve on to this day. Um, and Sunless Sea, again, uh, it was the first time I'd made an actual video game uh, as opposed to a, a browser-based, um, text centric game. And uh, it was the first game we'd made it that felt better that had moving pictures in as opposed mm. to still up. And... I'm very proud of a lot of things we did in Sunless Sea. I think overall it was a, a very successful game. But I made a couple of um uh, short-sighted design decisions uh that the game sort of struggled to get out from under. But again, I think it is something distinctive. I think there's um no other game's... Uh there were no other games like Summer at the time it was made. There are there are some more comparable ones now. Um, things like A How So Many Doors, which um Harry Tufts is making it so It's be very clear that Summer Sea is an influence. But so so *For London, I think, you know, got people's attention because it was doing something distinctive and doing something that n- other games didn't do. And it was um a commercially successful, uh critically moderately successful uh Text based game back when you couldn't really do that and make a living. And then suddenly it really got people's attention because it was just an order of magnitude greater success. And I still, you know, if I, if I, if I talk to somebody at a conference, I reckon there's like a 50 50 chance they'll have heard of us. We're not, we're not, felt better. We're, we're, we're never a, a huge name. Uh, you talk to somebody in narrative about Undertale, uh, and they'll have you know, you can guarantee that they'll have heard of it. He talks a about, about Fairbattle in Sunless Sea, fifty fifty.
0: Do you have a preference for the size of team you work with? Like when you look at Sunless Sea where uh now you said it was closer to like thirteen or fourteen people have fail better, um, compared to working on something as massive as Dragon Age, where there's just this mountain of lore behind it and all these different teams working together. is, is there sort of a different sense of accomplishment when you create something like Sunless Sea, which is maybe more of a focused idea influenced by fewer people compared to this conglomerate at BioWare? Or have you found BioWare to kind of also have maybe that personal nature to it, just more people?
1: I would be reluctant to say that the one team size is my favorite. I've been working on uh, Cultist Simulator, my own side project in the last couple of months, almost exclusively alone, doing all the writing and coding. Um, with a freelance um, artist and freelance UI designer who'd um, be working on a day ride. Uh and um, and I really enjoyed that I loved working on Sun and Sea uh, and a team a core team of three really and then we had a sort of a, a, a number of um, freelancers and people coming in and doing stuff towards the middle end of the project. I think sort of the final size of the team was like seven or eight, but the core team was three. That was great because everybody knows what they're doing and everybody could pick stuff up. And you really, if you, if you get a, a good camaraderie going, there's a lot of back and forth and creative interplay. But um, you just get a different kind of um, resource and a different kind of level of specialism um, at a, a larger developer. Uh, that means people can afford to specialise in a way they can't at smaller devs, and you, you, that you just learn stuff in a way that you can't if you work as a team of three. That was one of the reasons that I left Fail Better, was that you, if you're working with a small, a really small team, uh, and you're not mixing and matching with other people, uh, even if everybody you're working with is properly good. Mm. You, you, you kind of stop learning new things from each other because you can't you know there just can't be that much variety between that size
0: did you have to read a like war and peace sized manuscript with like a thick layer of dust on it before you did anything with dragon age like did you have to know everything about the lore before you could add anything to the lore about dragon age like what's it like coming on to a project that's already established
1: uh so so basically yes, uh but with, with some um mitigations again. Uh I played uh Origins and Dragon Age 2. Uh I would mean, have I played everything ever put out, I think, um uh, since from from, from onwards. Uh some of the, the very early stuff. Um but so, so I, I had a a solid grounding. But um, I still had to sit down with uh, the law guide um, and, and read through it. Um, I had to go back and uh, replay chunks of the games, and um, we were fortunate enough to have uh, access to the bio editors, in particular Corey May, um, who was kind of a living codex of, of uh, Dragon Age law, and. Uh, yeah, so so we, we did have to do a bunch of grounding, but we had sort of real-time access to the editors and to the writers as well. We, we, we got I remember um, David Gader uh, took Chris through um, uh, writing some of the uh, dialogue from Oregon to get the voice right, that kind of thing. So it was, it was you know, real-time back and forth stuff as well. But yeah, there's um, any big IP, there's a lot of lore accumulates. It's more like a coral reef than it's like a castle. You just keep on adding things to the edges of it. And it's very difficult to know which bits of it will be significant, and which bits people will care about, and which bits won't. There, um, I, th- I think, yeah, I'm pretty sure I can say this. So, um, for example, uh, Sylvia, one of the Bioware writers, has pointed out that in Dragon Age, mm-hmm. bodies are burned, not buried. Uh, this is a sort of fundamental part of the law because. Of the risk of de- demonic possession of corpses, which is a, a huge thing about the way magic works in the world but she 's pointed out that most of their fans don 't know or notice this it 's sort of quite a, a hardcore law thing, something fundamental, uh, but people don't don 't notice it at all so you can never tell what people are going to pick up or what people are going to care about conversely it's a before in London we have had the most um, preposterous things that I thought nobody would ever care about going back to bite us. When we invented a language called the correspondence, which is the the language that stars use to communicate amongst themselves to write messages in, Um, Paul, back in 2009, 2010, um, put together three or four glyphs, which are just meant to look nice. And um, we used those to illustrate stories about the correspondence. Mm. And our players quite reasonably assumed that there was a, a, an actual code here to break and that there was some rationale to the way that we'd used twisty turning glyph one rather than both twisty turning glyph four in a particular story and tried to back construct the whole language from it and very aggrieved to find out that we didn't seem to be consistent. <laughs> it never occurred to us to even bother to look at that. Foolishly.
0: <laughs> that has to be terrifying though with something of Dragon, Age, Dragon Age's scale because if you, I mean, you have a team that kind of, you know, check everything you're doing and edit it. But if you miss something, there's going to be like this segment of hardcore fans who are like, you heathen, how could you ever forget that? Blah, 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 blah. Like, was that daunting for you?
1: Yeah, very. Uh, But again, you know, editors, editors are great. Uh, We we finally hired an editor at um, Fair Better about a year before I left. Uh, And uh, Bioware are quite unusual in having a a team of editors um, in-house who work very closely with the writers. And, um, you, you, you sort of don't notice what it's like working, uh, with an editor, um, uh, until you have to work without one again, uh, because you just got a sort of constant degree of polish and sparkle and safety, uh, that, that you don't otherwise. So they, they catch, uh, a lot of stuff, uh, but every so often something slips through and, and somebody's going to object.
0: Uh, I mean, speaking of Dragon Age, Dragon Age is a game so much about player agency, player choice, and even just the smaller moments, and you did an interesting talk at uh, GDC once about choice, consequence, and complicity, which is, of course, once again, something you work with a lot, so something I wanted to bring up and talk about with you is, so, The Last of Us 2 was recently announced, or The Last of Us Part 2. And it made me think about the end of The Last of Us, which is strange because it seems like you're given this choice. I'm not sure if you played all the way through The Last of Us. Um, I haven't, I, know, I know that, yeah, I've okay. been spoiled. Yeah, so yeah, you're at that last moment where it seems like you're given a choice, but really instead you were... All you can really do is follow the will of the main character, Joel, even though you maybe you might think otherwise from him, but you're going through exactly what he wants to do, so it's a complicated question, but how do you think choice is best handled in game? do you think do you think there's a value in something like that ending where you realize there's really only one choice for this character, or do you think it's always good to have someone given multiple options of how to handle certain situations?
1: I think it's um it's down to signaling to people what they can reasonably expect.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There are really great linear narratives in games. There are also really great interactive narratives in games. I enjoy and um, I, I guess good at writing interactive narratives which have complex, varied consequences. That's, that's what I really get off on. But um, uh, Half-Life 2 which is an almost exclusively l- linear narrative, and Deus Ex, which has um, some extremely limited uh, branching um, in terms of the actual story progress, uh, are both you know two of my all-time favourite games, and and I think the storytelling in both those is is top notch. Or Telltale, uh, who um, uh, you know they, they relentlessly. Um, pursue the the formula they've worked out, uh, but it's a really good formula and they're extremely skilled at making it work. They get a certain amount of uh, stick for making games which look like your choices are going to affect the plot more than they are. But what they're good at and why the games work is that the actual experience of making each of those choices is fulfilling or exciting or agonising. And as long as the player knows that the experience of making the choice is the important thing, but it's not the consequence afterwards that's important. That's fine. Uh, Where things fail is when something looks like it's going to be a substantial consequence of people have reason to believe it will be. uh, And then it it, it turns out to look like a a fraud or, or, um, uh, or or cheat where you, you press button B and it says, no, you've got to go back and press button A to continue. Uh, if people have reason to expect, it's going to be problematic, and that's um, uh, that's an issue. Because consequences are just expensive, right? Every Everything in a game comes at the cost of something else in a game. So if you're going to put more consequence in your game, then you are going to put less of something else in your game. And if your game is narrative, um, largely, then by adding more consequence, you're likely to have less interesting choice or a shorter story. That very often is the right decision. very often consequence is exciting, and despite being expensive it's worth doing. but sometimes you can achieve the same emotional intensity just by providing a sufficiently exciting choice or by making the the action in the moment of, of making the choice sufficiently exciting. If you watch a play um if you watch you know um something that's that that um hinges on uh difficult challenging moral choices moments of drama you know Ibsen or Shakespeare or Mamet or Stoppard you know there's, there's something like like that where it's very plotty um, and really hinders what people are going to do they're always going to do the same thing night on night but you really care about the choice to make you're going to be up there if, if it's a good play and um, willing it to be different uh, that's how tragedy works you know it's not going to change but you wish it would and uh if that's true in a non-interactive medium how much more true it is when you're actually making what, what even a simple choice of minimal consequence so that, that that's that's um, a little bit of a, a, a an all things to all people answer you know well it depends on what you want, but the key thing is that you don't flag one kind of thing you don't suggest it's going to be there's going to be a consequence and then pull the rug out from people because they will feel cheated and the other thing of course is that there are um Techniques for getting maximum consequential bang for your choice buck. There are kinds of choice that you learn to avoid. There are kinds of consequence that you learn to embrace because you realize people are going to feel they've had a much more substantial effect on the plot, um, or on the world. Uh, if, if you do one kind of consequence than another, um, and there are ways of making choices kind of naturally align. The example I, um, uh, I always give because it's, it's very cheap, very quick is sunless sea. All the ships happen to be steamships, uh, because it, the, the, the game is set on an underground ocean where there's no wind. This is surprisingly useful when you're writing text choices about, um, uh, uh navigating on a ship mm-hmm. because, um, whether you are in a battleship or a steam yacht or a tiny little customs cutter, you could write the same text about uh, people stripped naked to the waist, um, you know, their their skin gleaming with sweat and and black with soot, and uh, uh, um, the, um, uh, the the you know the tiny burns from the, the sparks coming out of the furnace, this kind of thing. Uh, and you can use that in, in in five different circumstances, and it feels suitable to the situation. If we'd ended up having sailing ships, galleys and seam shapes that would be much harder to do. Now, the reason I hesitated in the middle of saying that was because I said, their skin's black with soot. And this is actually uh, another thing that comes up when writing interactive fiction, is, is the unstated assumptions, uh, which you need to be careful of. Mm. Uh, years ago, we referred to somebody in uh, a story as, uh, the, the, the player sees their, um, their reflection uh, in a mirror in a dream, and it says something like, you know, you're, you're, you're as pale as a ghost. And a player wrote to us and said, well, that's not actually how I had thought of my character because I'm black and I'd always assume my character's black. I hadn't really yeah. thought about it. But then he said, power's a ghost, and that, that was weird. Um, and in fact, the writer who'd, um, who'd written it also wasn't white. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, assumptions are pervasive and easy, so it, so it came in. So uh, for every uh, useful trick, there's also a trap
0: how difficult can it be to stack choices from game to game? You mentioned Telltale. They have episode from episode, and everything you did before has to kind of funnel into the next thing. And uh, Mass Effect is one of those classic examples where it's it kind of starts with just so many choices, and especially in the middle, there's all these different things going on. It really feels mm-hmm. like what you're doing matters. Then you get to that, you know, that ending that everyone talks about, and it kind of feels like some of that was left away, where it's like, well, this is just this doesn't feel like my ending, this just feels like the ending. I mean, as, as a writer, as a game designer, how difficult is it to make choices feel impactful, especially if you are stacking them on more games moving forward?
1: Uh, so, not surprising, I'm going to say very. Uh, <laughs> here, here, here are a couple of, of things that can help with that. So, one um, is choice design, um, and the other is system design. Choice design... Um, the, the, one of the um, most trivial and annoying choices you can give somebody in the game is: Do you want to turn left or right? Um, and um, very often, if you first come to choices like they'll kind of they'll, they'll pick choices at random because they'll put someone in a situation, they'll put a character in a situation, and think what kind of situation. Was it like to be, okay, what kind of choices would they make in that situation? Are you going to have chicken or prawn for lunch? Um, are you going to take the bus or the train? Who cares? Unless, of course, uh, you have finite money um, and the bus is cheaper than the train, but the train is going to get you there um, uh, quicker. If there's a, a reason for you to care because there's a bomb you have to defuse or a date you need to make uh, or your mother's funeral you need to get to, then, then suddenly these things are important. And although I said a decision about whether to go left or go right um, is fundamentally trivial and annoying, ninety-five percent of the time it is. But you take a game like Eighty Days, which uh, was deservedly praised for the quality of its choice design. A lot of the choices you make are going left or right, because it's a game about traversing the world. It's a game about um, deciding which compromises to make and, and and which navigational strategies to pursue, and seeing the consequences of that later. So if you make if you add choices to your game that align with what your game is about, that makes it easier uh, to, to stack the choices later. In order to do that, you need to have a, a serious thought about what your game is about and, and decide its themes or its creative direction or its design pillars to align your choices with that, which is just a good thing to do for many other reasons as well. So the less arbitrary your choices and the more relevant and important your choices a, a, the naturally easier it will be um to, to trade them together so that's that's one one side of it the other side of it is that i always say interactive narrative a lot of people accidentally or instinctively will say branching narrative and oh. i will growl uh, like a bear that's been hit with a snug <laughs> because um branching is the most primitive way of doing interactive narrative not the worst Sometimes it's the best thing to do, because you sometimes you want something really straightforward. Lots of great stuff is written in Twine, uh, in stateless, hypertexty Twine even, uh, despite the fact it's it's a very primitive structure uh, compared to something that has more of a, a game design underneath it or, or, or more resources that you interact with. So, so you know, small-scale branching narrative is fine, but it's it's like a, a, a huge branching-if structure for... for a program it, it very quickly starts to founder under its own weight so a lot of the larger scale more successful um approaches you see to handling this stuff look a bit less like branching and a bit more like changing variables or states often people will do that by having branches that join together um down the uh down the line which is is functionally equivalent to having variables that change for in London, uh, well, then let me be say first, Choice of Games, uh, who do an extraordinary large number of, um, a very professional quality, um, uh, text heavy, um, mobile works mm-hmm. use a combination of branching, um, uh, and variables, which means they can have much, much larger, uh, stories. I mean, some their large stories are two, three hundred thousand words. And for in London, doesn't really use branching at all you uh you have made choices but then they will set a variable which will determine what other choices are available to you and that immediately makes it easier to uh, handle uh, larger stories because you don't have to cater for every possible outcome every possible choice you say okay you could have got to this place uh, where your nightmares is at five um, or your patron is a duchess in these five or six different ways and we don't really care about how you got to this point we just have to cater for this one set of circumstances at this point so yeah it's hard but there are there are always techniques
0: you you mentioned multiple examples of games you know, that do choice well do, do you are there any games you look at because so as a writer uh i will sometimes read a piece of criticism and I'm like man i am jealous of that like i am jealous of this thought they had about this i wish i would have thought of this first as a game designer as a writer Uh, whether it be due to a game's interactive narrative or just writing overall, do you ever see a game or an idea or writing and get jealous of it? Or uh, to kind of go off that, is there any sort of games right now out there that you think, man, this is doing choice better than anything else out there?
1: Uh, I think, I mean, so so the answer to the first question, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, I I constantly come across stuff, uh, but I think that's just um, smart. Um, and I'm jealous I didn't think of it first. Uh, is there anything out there that is doing choice better than anything else? I don't think so because uh, I think it's very rare for a project of any size to hit all the right notes and choice constantly You never have to have a trivial choice. It's just, you know, it's really hard to to, to make choices always interesting in a project of any size. You're, you're going to slip up sooner or later um the quality of prose in video games i think um a, a, as a field um our, our prose is more um variable and standards of our audience is um lower um than than other fields which involve text which you'd expect because it's fundamentally um, a, a, a genre of movement and um, image, and also you'd expect me to say it because I'm a writer, and obviously I'm always going to think that you know what we do is underserved. But it's not—it's not like a, a a minority opinion to say writing in video games um, is not generally its finest feature. Yeah, no. It has really improved, really improved the last five or ten years. Dan. It just it, there's always been jewels, and it just keeps on getting better. Um, yeah, so 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 very often um, I I see stuff I'm jealous of, and I think the the key thing for me is, is brevity. Uh, the work I like most is the work that does a lot with a little. Uh, there is often a temptation to spray text uh, at a player just to prove that you're doing something, just to prove that they're getting value. And I would much rather listen to three pithy lines. That make an effective character point um, or, or outline a good choice, um, then, uh, then, you know, I, I would generally not bother to read three pages of, of lore that I've been acquired through like homework. And this is, again, one of the things that, that um, Telltale do well. Um, I've I played, you know, now a minority of Telltale games because they're so um, prolific. Um, but the... Um, uh, A lot of telltale lines are concise and effective and characterful, and especially in in choices where you've got a few seconds to make a decision about something that often has a a difference expressed quite, quite leanly. They're really good. And obviously, uh, Firewatch, which is one of the standout narrative games um, of this last year. the, I have my issues with Firewatch, but none of the issues, um, none of the issues are serious and none of the issues are around um, uh, the quality of the dialogue, which just keeps on hitting the, the right notes all the way through. And it's surprisingly hard to do. I used to to make writers I was working with sometimes read back lines they'd written that I thought uh, were clangers. And you can see somebody, as soon as the line actually gets into their mouth, uh, they realise it's not something a human being would ever say.
0: It, Firewatch is actually something I was just going to bring up because you're talking about brevity and you were talking about kind of things hitting a lot of good notes. It, Firewatch does, as I was playing that, it felt like someone had read all of those lines out loud before they were ever completed and be like, all right, does this sound like a human is saying it or does this sound like a poorly written video game line? And it ev- was so rare that a line was spoken in that game where I'm like, that sounds weird. Like all of it felt natural to the characters. It felt natural to the setting and uh, yeah, brevity in general. Uh, whether it be in games or especially with reviews writing the, the 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 best thing i learned the further i got into reviews writing was you know to self edit to cut out a lot of the shit that you don't need to say things in more concise manners uh it's it's yeah something in games i'd love to see more of uh and we've talked a bit about the the stuff you're working on now but just what what can you tell us about what i know there's probably some things you were embargoed or you can't say or you signed something but what projects are you working on now that you can actually talk about? Now that you're away from Failbetter, now that uh, we're moving into 2017, uh, what's, what's kind of the plan for the next year?
1: So um, I'm working at the moment uh, on a project I mentioned earlier called Cultist Simulator, uh, which is a um, game of mystery experimentation and self-destruction. It's a, a, a card narrative game where you combine cards, which are things like Mysterious Legacy, um, or, or, or hapless enthusiasts uh, with your health and your reason and your um, uh, southern monstrosities and your dark rituals uh, to try to uh, destroy the world or yourself or just give it all up and, and get a nice promotion at the bank. Mm. And it's quite a small project, but um, I mean, I used to be a, a software developer um, full-time, but I'm terribly rusty and I hadn't used Unity before, so I had a successful learning curve. But it's sort of taken uh, a while to spin up. Um, but uh, that has probably only got uh, three months more work on it but annoyingly, um, kind of a nice problem to have but annoyingly I'm starting with Bioware in January so I'm going to have to put Cultist Simulator on hold um, until uh, probably September uh, next year and during that time I'll be working um, on an unannounced Bioware project although people have made some fairly... Um, uh plausible predictions about what projects be based <laughs> on the names that have come up when I've been talking about it. Uh, I've just come off um uh well, not just come off I, I wrote it a while back but just released uh is um a uh free downloadable story for Stellaris. Now Stellaris uh as people might know is Paradox's um Space 4X game and Paradox did not make small games. Um, Stellaris was very, uh, fiction driven. Um, you, you're, you're, a space empire in a universe full of stories. And, um, it is big enough and Stellaris and Paradox's players are enthusiastic enough. They burn through all the content very quickly.
0: Mm.
1: So they, uh, they got me as a guest writer to do this. The, um, a basically, cosmic horror ghost story, sort of the Twilight Zone meets Event Horizon. I described it as called um, the Horizon Signal, uh, where you um, can engage meaningfully and perhaps affectionately with a uh, preposterous, paradoxical, destructive force from outside space and time. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I think nothing, nothing else I can actually discuss publicly at the moment, but that will keep me busy until almost the end of 2017
0: last thing i don't want to keep you too much longer but is now that you're like six months removed from fail better and you're kind of doing your own thing now i mean has this been as i don't know freeing is the right word but creatively satisfying as you hoped it would be now that you're you know doing your own project and you're gonna be working with bioware soon and that uh, Stellaris uh content like has this been kind of everything you wanted it to be
1: um, I mean, you know, for it to be everything I wanted it to be, I need a pony as well. But it's been, it's, it's, uh, I have been, uh, I have found it more enlightening um, than uh, I dared hope. Every time I interact with somebody else, uh, I, I, I get insights I wouldn't have um, otherwise. Even the bits of consultancy I've been doing on the side. Uh, Often caused me to slap my forehead um, and uh, and think, of course, that thing. And when I was a software developer, um, I moved into a consultancy role from quite a comfortable job running a development team because I realised I was going stale. This is a very very similar experience. Just by constant contact with people taking different approaches to similar problems, you realise things you wouldn't have otherwise even if you have different contact with professionals you know at, at conferences and online um you're you're very nice to take your brain out of your own project and push it into their, their projects and you really need to bathe your brain in the vital fluids of that project in order to absorb its um um it's nutritive goodness so yes it's it's, it's met my expectations
0: all right. Well that is great to hear. Uh if people do want to find you on social media or find your work or anything like that, what's the best way to do that?
1: I am Cunningly Hidden uh at, at Alexis Kennedy on Twitter. Um more mysteriously, um on the web, I'm www.weatherfactory.biz. uh dot biz. Weather Factory is just my um uh solo studio and dot com was taken which so I still haven't learned to fucking name names before I I a, a company name. Uh, uh, um, the uh, game that I work on is called Cultist Simulator. And if you go to where the factory is, or look at basically one in every five things I tweet, uh, you could sign up for updates about it. I might get an out for out before Christmas. Probably be after at this point, thank
0: you. All right, great. Well, I'm looking forward to it. It's, it. It was fun even just researching the stuff you've done leading up to this. Like that GDC, GDC talk was just fascinating for me from start to finish and uh, i'm usually I'm someone really- who uh kind of sticks with linear games i get i just i don't know i get overwhelmed sometimes with the amount of choice in some <laughs> massive games like a dragon age but hearing how you describe it uh on that talk and on this podcast kind of gives me a new appreciation for it and maybe just understanding it more so yeah it's been i really do appreciate the time and you going over all of that i'm um, i'm
1: i'm really glad to hear that and the one thing i want to to go out is is saying that i um i cannot overstate how much more sophisticated uh, the conversation around video games gets every year and i was a bit mean earlier about internet renders and comments but i think the the, the level of um uh conversation about the industry uh, about sorry about the, the the craft about the design um from critics uh, between indie designers, um, between um, uh, just comments like on Steam forums, which are not necessarily traditionally havens of intellectual activity, it keeps on getting better year on year. I keep seeing smarter and smarter observations in among all the people saying, you know, random teenage homophobic things, obviously. But it's uh, it keeps on getting better, and, and 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 I think when we look back in another ten years, we're really going to realise the kind of progress that you made.
0: I, I think we forget how young video games are sometimes. I think we forget like how much a lot of the people who critique them and play them don't really understand how they're made, everything going on behind the scenes, and uh, vice versa. So no, I fully agree. Even as I was writing my last few reviews in 2015, I would notice in the comments just this level of understanding beyond what I was used to when I was reading reviews when I was younger. And uh, it, it's been... It's been great to know, to get to understand the entire industry, and have more in-depth conversations than I've ever had, and to listen to those, and to see these talks, especially at GDC, especially at APAX, that uh, I've learned a great deal. And it's yeah, just it's absolutely just a new appreciation for each individual aspect of game design and criticism.
1: Cool. We'll go off.
0: <laughs> well, thank you again, Alexis, and uh, thank you everyone have for listening. Pleasure. And hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.